Hey, thank you for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can go to our website, renewalchicago.com. I pray that this podcast today is a blessing and encouragement to your soul. We are picking up today with our I Am series. There's these series of statements from Jesus where he, where he says, I am, and he's, he's disclosing himself, his identity, to people who are walking with him and following him, who are curious about him. And so he has a series of I Am statements. We're picking up with that today. And before we get started, I just want to do like a silent poll, right? So think about, I wonder today for you, if you were to assess your life right now, what you would identify as your most pressing need. Like, like, think for a moment and name that to yourself. Your most pressing need, your most pressing problem. What is that thing? You got it? For some of you, you're like, instantly you knew what it was, right? You're like, yes, that thing. The thing that I'm worried about constantly, right? For some of you are like, what is that? Your most pressing need. I, I imagine, my guess is, um, if we were to kind of... Uh, put all those on a ballot and present them on the screen, I don't know, we would have several that would come up re- repeatedly. There would people, be people that said, you know, getting out of debt, debt is a pressing need. There would be people who say their marriage is, is out of control or their children are rebellious and they need help. It's a pressing need. There would be some of us who would say that, they're, that they have debilitating stress or anxiety, right? There are some of us in this room, probably, almost certainly, that would say, like, housing Affordable housing, finding a place to live is a pressing need. Landing the job is a pressing need. Something even bigger, like becoming a better person is a pressing need. Uh, Buckling down in self-discipline, more study, more exercise, more whatever is a pressing need. The point is we can all name pressing needs in our lives, right? We can all name what is that thing or what are those things that that like are burdening us that we need help with. We all have things like that. And uh, various versions we would have repeated today. But today, as we look at Jesus' I am statement that we're gonna, about to read together, I wanna, I wanna say that part of what Jesus is saying, part of his claim is that all of these needs that, we, that I've just rattled off are all important, they're all urgent, they're all pressing, but none are the most urgent, the most pressing, or the most important. Jesus is making a claim today that we will see that there are two things, two pressing needs that we have that only he can provide the solution to, right? So let's read together. Uh, We're going to be in John 11, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 11, and we're going to read 17 through 27. So you can uh, turn there in your Bible, turn on your Bible app, John 11, 17 through 27, Uh, Just leading up to this, this is what's happened. There's this family, uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They're a uh, family who is close to Jesus and the disciples, dear friends of Jesus. The sisters have sent for Jesus because Lazarus is deathly ill and Jesus does not arrive on time. Lazarus died. So Jesus shows up to the scene and this is what we're about to read is just part of the story, but it's mostly a conversation between Martha and Jesus in this aftermath of Lazarus' death. Right, so let's stand to read uh, John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. Uh, Stand if you're able, and I'll read it. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews, those are Jewish leaders, had come to uh, Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary, Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What faith, right? But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of God. You guys may be seated. So we have this series of I am statements. We're leading up to this I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. We've looked at I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. Uh, I am the bread of life. And now we have I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus, in this passage that we just read, he makes some radical statements here. He says to Martha, pretty matter-of-factly, your brother will rise again. Right? Imagine being at a funeral, and somebody says in all earnestness, yeah, they're about to rise again. Right? The casket's like right there. He says this really matter-of-factly to Martha, and then he says plainly, I am the resurrection and the life. And the passage presents us with one of the more fundamental claims about Christianity, Jesus' power to resurrect the dead. Now, uh, imagine you're tasked, go to the seminary tonight, cemetery, not seminary. Yeah, yeah, sometimes they're the same, right? Go to the cemetery tonight and raise a dead person. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? See, there are some problems that we cannot do anything about. Who are you going to take with you? The worship band? Right? A really great preacher? It's not going to work. There are some problems that are so intractable, we need a different solution. Jesus is claiming to be that solution. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to kind of give an outline for the day, but before we go any further, anytime we talk about Jesus and his power to resurrect, two questions arise. And I just want to acknowledge these two questions. There's the question of historicity. Like, did this happen? You know, some of you are sitting in the room going, okay, okay, but do you really believe it? You know what I mean? Like, do you really think that happened? (laughs) Are you expecting me to believe that this happened, that this is historical, right? So there's a question of historicity, and there's the question of meaning. Like, even if it did happen, even if Jesus did raise some guy named Lazarus from the dead, so what? What does it mean for me in the 21st century, right? I'm acknowledging those questions, and I'm I'm just telling you from the get-go, we are going to emphasize the question of meaning today. What does it mean? If, you, if it is gnawing at you, like, is this trustworthy? Is this historical? Talk to me afterward. There are good resources. I am not dodging the historical question because there are not good answers. I'm dodging it because we don't have time to address both questions. And because I think that this passage is focused on the meaning question. Jesus is making a claim about meaning. He's, he's asking, did you see the, the, the thesis question that he asked Martha? Do you believe this? He's focused on meaning, like this makes a difference. 
in your life. So we're, we're emphasizing that today, and the, the crux of everything is in verses 25 and 26. Go ahead and look at, at him again. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. And then he goes on. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is this repetitive, like, turning over the same idea. Like, Jesus is getting at something really, really radical. He is saying that only through him is their life before death. And only through him is their life after death. This is universal. This is absolute. You want to talk about life? Jesus is your guy. Only through Jesus is there life before death. You know what I'm talking about? Life that really is life, life that's in abundance. Only through Jesus is that life. And only through Jesus is life after death. That's why he's so repetitive. That's why he says it again and again. He's saying only in me is there life that really is life. So first, only Jesus gives life before death. This is the claim that he gave a chapter before. He said, I am the good shepherd, John 10. And then he says one of my very favorite verses in the whole Bible. I have come that they might have life and have life that's really life. Have life in abundance. It's awesome. He is making the same claim here. You want life before death? It's only found in me. Life before death is, is mostly the purview of young people. Our church is overwhelmingly young people, right? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning? How do I find it? How do I get the good life, right? Life after death is mostly, for the most part, the purview of older people. They see the end coming. They say, what's the point of it all? Is there life after death, right? Jesus is the answer to both. Jesus is saying, I give life that really is life. I am the way to the good life. You know, every, almost every advertisement that is out there today is making a claim about how you get the good life, right? Almost all of them. I saw a magazine ad, a full-page magazine ad on the back of, I don't remember, one of, a magazine on the airplane, and it was a Samsung phone, and it said, life in abundance. And I'm like, you ripped that off from John 10.10, <laughs> and this is a cell phone, I mean, come on, right? They're, they're all making a claim about how you achieve the good life. You know, one of my favorite uh, ad campaigns that's been going on for years is E-Trade. You, you have the, these commercials where there's somebody or something, the most recent one that I saw, it's actually dogs, it's not even someone. These dogs have achieved the good life. They, they somehow have the good life, and there's some guy out there like uh, uh, power spraying the deck, and he's like, they have the good life and I don't. And what is the, what is the slogan? Don't get mad, get E-Trade right? Don't get mad, get E-Trade. Now listen, E-Trade's premise is get your financials in order and there's the good life. Samsung's premise is get your social network in order and there's the good life. Jesus is saying you will never achieve the good life apart from me. The life that really is life. It's so much more than finances or network. It's something else. This is, this is a problem. This is a problem that, that you can't contend with on your own. It requires a solution beyond yourself. And so we have to ask, why? Why do we so perpetually, we humans, not just Christians, see, feel so perpetually robbed of the good life? What is that thing that has everybody chasing it down, trying to get, at, trying to get it, grasp it? What is it? The Christian worldview has one of the clearest, most robust answers to this question. 
about what has robbed people of the good life and all that they're after. The answer, the Bible sets forth. The, the, the Bible is making a claim about how the world works. Or, or maybe even better, why the world doesn't work the way it should, right? The Bible is making a claim about that from Genesis to Revelation. It's, it's telling us. It tells us that the world has gone wrong, that, that, that people are robbing people of the good life. Did you hear that? People are the problem. And not just other people, all people are robbing people of the good life. Like, like the good life, like it's broken. Something, something has been, uh, needs to be restored, something that once was, and we all have this sense. And people are the problem. And people, they, they can be confronted with a choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing, and, and over and over again, they do the wrong thing. People, are you one of them? Are you a person? <laughs> you think, not me. I, I can think of a time right now that I had a choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing, and I did the right thing. Okay. <laughs> every time, like every time you did the right thing, and, and even if you did do the right thing, think about why you did it. Did you do it for the wrong reasons? See, there's something about the, 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 the claim of Jesus is getting to our hearts. I was talking to my 12-year-old daughter uh, yesterday, the day before, and I'm like, this is amazing. Something is dawning on her. And she said, you know, when you ask me to wash the dishes and I obey, I do it um, because for me, not for you. And I'm like... <laughs> What? And she's like, yeah, because that way I don't get punished for not doing the dishes. You see, she did the right thing for the wrong reasons. <laughs> you know, if she, if she does the wrong thing, it's also for her. She's avoiding it. She's dodging it because she wants to go do something else. She's doing the wrong thing for her. She's doing the right thing for her. Man, I love that that truth is soaking into her heart. Like, wow, I've, I've got problems, Dad. <laughs> This is the same kind of thing. That's the same kind of phrase that we can go to the Heavenly Father with. I've got problems, Dad. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, I, even when I, those, those fleeting moments when I choose the right thing, if I really search deep down in my heart, it's usually for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm celebrated, or I get patted on the back, or I avoid some kind of consequence. This worldview, the Christian worldview, this thing that's, that's seeped into the bloodstream of humanity, the Bible calls sin. And it's a good word because it's just kind of all-inclusive, this classical word. Like we have a bias to the wrong thing. Like our good created nature from God has been corrupted. And we operate in a corrupted nature. And it's robbing us of the good Life, do you see? And Jesus says, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can deal with sin except for me. I am the solution. You can get E-Trade, you can get a new phone, you can get a new house, you can get a new girlfriend or boyfriend. Nothing will deal with the heart condition, with the will condition of sin in your heart. But I can this is Jesus' claim. There's uh, a woman named uh, Sherry Thomas. Um, she started an organization that, uh, for Christian leaders. Uh, she also does some research. Um, she put it this way. I just recently heard her talk. She said, uh, you need, you people, me too, we need to write down, I am not a theoretical sinner. 
And then she jokes like, put it in a frame and hang it on your wall. You see, sin is not like something that some people once did one, at one time. It's not something that other people sometimes do. It's not something that I struggled with back then. It's not something that I occasionally under stress am prone to. Do you see? I am not a theoretical sinner. I need something. I need someone. I need a solution to deal with my sin, to deal with the, with the, uh, the bent of my heart towards sin. Like, so that every time I can do the right thing. Uh, perhaps at the beginning, uh, when we conducted our silent poll, perhaps you named your sin as the most pressing problem in your life. Maybe you did. If you did, you're right. But my guess is most of us didn't. Most of us fail to see. Even those of us who have been in church for a long time fail to see, like, what is the really, really the most pressing sin? Uh, most pressing issue, problem. It's our propensity to sin. Sherry Thomas doesn't say, uh, write down, I am not a theoretical sinner because she's a pessimistic person. She's not. She's a bright person. She writes it down because the cancer cannot be cut out until, until it is first diagnosed. We've got to know what the problem is so that we can look for the one and only solution. Do you see? What can rescue us from this condition, us humans from this condition? Paul, the Apostle Paul, he put it this way, what can rescue me from this body of death? And then he gave an answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's making the same point that Jesus is making here with Martha. Jesus turns to Martha. He says, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha said to him something really interesting. She says, I know he will rise again on the, on the last day. And the resurrection on the last day. Do you remember that? Did you, did you catch that? Her answer is not wrong. It's, it's right answer. It's just pitifully falls short of the whole answer, right? She kind of gives like a distant religious answer. Like, yeah, someday out there, okay. And Jesus is like, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm right here in front of you. I'm here. It's here. It's happening. Like, this is real, it's tangible, it's now. I give life before death and after death. This is the message of the whole Christian worldview, uh, that, that, that God is set out. He created everything, every good thing, everything that we see, God created. And then people make a mess of it, Right? So God breaks in and he begins again with the family of Noah and people make a mess of it. So God in his steadfast love chooses Sarah and Abraham to make a new nation in his name and people make a mess of it. Do you see? So he breaks in again and he raises up a king and people make a mess of it. So God breaks in and appoints prophets to proclaim and teach what is true and people make a mess of it. So God himself, he says, I will come. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you see? He breaks in personally. He says, only, I am the only solution to this problem of sin in the human heart. I wonder if you came here today wondering, even, sub, even subconsciously, what you can do for God. God, Jesus, does not want you, here's the message to Martha, he does not want you to display your strength by, by working for him. He wants to display his strength 
by working for you. This is the Christian message. Did you hear that? This is remarkable. This is, this is radical. And this frees up the person in new life to actually work altruistically. Because if I am totally secure in Christ, if I actually have everything I ever needed, if I have life in abundance now and forevermore, then I never need to justify myself. I never need to, to, to do the right thing to save myself. I'm already saved. I never need to do the right thing to kind of protect myself. I'm already protected. It is the only way to the good life. Do you see? What a radical claim. What a radical solution. This is what Jesus is offering. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Life that really is life is from me. He doesn't say, I will. He doesn't say, I promise. He doesn't say, I procure. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's awesome. This is the good life. Jesus gives life before death. But that's only part one. Part two is Jesus gives life after death. Only Jesus gives life after death. This is the one that is more readily apparent to us, isn't it? I mean, we can't really deal with death. Sometimes, um, oftentimes, there's a cover story in a magazine, there's a show on Discovery Channel, something about science, how we're going to all be cyborgs someday and live forever, I don't know, right? This is not new. Do not think that it is new that people are trying to live forever, right? There are mythologies as old as humanity about chasing down how do you live forever, right? How do you deal with death? And guess what? We don't, we, we haven't figured it out yet. No one has. We need a solution outside of ourselves to deal with death. You know, one of the most enduring uh, of all worldviews, I've mentioned kind of like a rapid sweeping view of the Christian worldview. One of the most enduring philosophies or worldviews is from a guy named Epicurus. He lived about 300 BC, and even if you don't, haven't heard of him, you've almost certainly heard his most famous line, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Have you heard this? It's in songs, it's in pop music, it's in culture, it's in movies, and, and even if it's not directly in movies and song, it is, um, the, 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 the premise is in movies and song. Do you see what I mean? And, and his, his philosophy was so pervasive, it's even quoted twice in the New Testament, 300 years later. It's quoted in the New Testament, it's still quoted today, and I think this is why his philosophy was enduring. It's honest. Because if tomorrow we're just all dead anyway, what else is there to do but chase after some fleeting pleasure? That's it. You know, today uh, people tend to be more hedonistic with this view, but Epicurus and his followers originally, they were fatalistic. Their emphasis was on the second half, for tomorrow we die. What's the point? What, what is the point of art or charity or goodness or family or home or country or nation or, or whatever? What's the point? We're all dead tomorrow. It's honest. It's honest. If, if you were to poll the average Western person today, they would say death is the end. It's the end. And, and Epicurus helps us to get honest. There is no platform, there is no basis whatsoever for any kind of moral indignation from you if death is the end. There is no basis for any kind of concern with the good of other people if death is the end. We're all dead anyway. What's the difference? Epicurus reminds us of that. There's a, you know, my wife and I spent a few years in uh, Mexico, and in Latin America, in different portions, some of the Caribbean too, there's actually 
a cult, a group of people who worship death. Like, like they've personified death, Saint Death. She's usually dressed in a white gown. They, they build altars and make sacrifices to death. And, and on the surface, you're like, that is crazy. But you know what? It is also an honest worldview. Because death is that one thing that no one can cheat. At the end of the day, death always wins. You see? And so they're just being honest, just like Epicurus was being honest. Now, I disagree with Epicurus. I disagree with the the cult of Saint Death. But the reason I disagree is because I have Jesus. Because Jesus steps in and says, I am the solution to this one thing that can never be beaten. He says, I am the resurrection. I have the power to raise the dead spiritually, bodily, eternally. I actually, I actually have that power. That's his claim. Who do you take, to you take with you to the graveyard? You take Jesus. He raises the dead. You know, if we were to read further um, in our passage, there's this, there's this portion where Jesus actually goes to the tomb, to the graveside. And he asks for the rock to be removed from the tomb. And he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. It's amazing. There's an old Puritan commentator that said, it's a good thing he said Lazarus first or the tomb would have been empty. Do you see? All the dead people would have come out. Because he has that kind of power. It's a good thing he said Lazarus or all the tombs would be emptied. He raises the dead. This, this is the solution. The the Apostle Paul, he said, death is the last enemy. Who can destroy this thing? Listen, Jesus swallowed up death. That is what, that is what the the prophet Isaiah tells us, is what the Apostle Paul tells us, is what Jesus himself is telling us right now with Martha. He swallows up death. He takes care of of, of one half of our problem, sin, that we can never eradicate on our own, and he takes care of the other half of our problem that we can never take care of on our own, death. He is the solution. He is the solution, and only in him is this whole paradigm this whole paradigm about death is, just, is the finality. It's, it's turned upside down. It's not the finality if it's not the finality. Do you see? If he raises you again, it's not the end. Jesus changes everything. Jesus, there, there are two, there's too often that people tend to emphasize one or other of these things. And here's what I mean. Progressive cultures tend to emphasize the good life, life before death, like the here and now, to the exclusion of ever even thinking about afterlife, right? More traditional or sometimes religious people tend to emphasize afterlife to the exclusion of any kind of understanding or or engagement in social problems today, right? Jesus breaks all of that. And just like all of Christianity, what happens here? He transcends any human category or tribe or camp because he says, I am, I am sufficient for both. I am the solution for life before death and the solution for life after death. Here it is. I think we have a slide for this. Jesus doesn't merely promise a social answer to present problems, but neither does he merely offer a religious answer to eternal problems. Jesus promises himself as the one answer to both problems. This is 
majestic. This is radical. This is unlike anything else out there. This, this, would, this would shake up Epicurus in the, in the cult of the dead like nothing else. This should shake up you. This should make you step back. All of your most pressing needs, all of your most pressing problems, ultimately, you follow the path, the root is sin. Jesus takes care of the root. The end of you, you're going to die. And Jesus can take care of that too. And then there's this wonderful phrase from Jesus. What, What does he ask Martha? He says, do you believe? Why does he ask that question? Because before he says, everyone who believes has resurrection and life. How wonderfully inclusive. Can you think of a more inclusive message? Here's here's a religion, here's a leader who says this is not for a particular group of people. It's for everyone who believes. John, uh, who wrote this little history, he has a few places where he says this is a sign. This is a sign for them. And this whole episode with Jesus and Martha, and later he weeps with Mary, and then he goes to the graveside and he resurrects Lazarus. (laughs) It's unbelievable. John tells us this is a sign, and what John means by that every single time is this is, this, is a, this is awesome. I mean, raising somebody from the dead is amazing, but John is telling us it's just a sign of the even greater thing. And, and he tells us it's a sign because, you know what? Lazarus still died. Think about that. He died. He left the grave, and he still died. You know, the one hand you can say, like, isn't that awesome? Lazarus was raised again. I wonder what he thought. He's like, I got to do this twice. (laughs) It's pointing. It's a sign. Jesus is pointing to himself. He's saying, you think this is awesome. You know, just a couple of weeks after this is when Jesus was betrayed. He's pointing to what he's about to do. You think it's incredible that I raised Lazarus bodily. Wait till you see what's about to happen. They're going to kill me, and I am going to raise again, but raise in finality, like my resurrected body. When Lazarus left the tomb, he was wrapped in burial cloths. John records this specifically. Why? Because he also records when Jesus left the tomb, his burial cloths were behind him. He had a new resurrected body, and when Jesus talks about resurrection, when he talks about resurrecting you, he's talking about forever. It's going to happen forever. This this Lazarus thing, for God, it's nothing. It's pitiful compared to the resurrection that he has for you if you believe. But he has for you if you believe. It's for everyone who believes. It is so astonishing. Jesus is honest with us, and he tells us our problem is sin and death. He He doesn't beat around the bush. And Jesus says, I am the answer to both. I am the solution to both. What can undo this brutal reality that we see all around us? Jesus. He can. He will unmake all of the sadness. There's a wonderful uh, line in Lord of the Rings where uh, Sam Ganji says to Gandalf, near the end, near the end, he says, will all the sad come untrue? Yes, 
This is resurrection. There's a reason why the Bible uses, why Jesus himself uses this language of new birth. This is so radical and so new and so fresh that it's it's as if you were born all over again. Life before death and life after death. This is what Jesus uniquely offers. Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? I ask you the same today. Do you believe this? Do you? I'm not asking, do you call yourself a Christian? (laughs) I'm asking, do you believe this? Is Jesus the solution to your most fundamental problems, sin and death? What is your main problem today? What is your most desperate need today? All are important. All are good to give to God in prayer. And listen, we can give them to God in prayer because we know that he is sufficient for them because we know that he has conquered sin and death. He is the solution. He gives life before death. He gives life after death. Let me, let me conclude in prayer, and I'm going to take a moment uh, just for quiet so you can ask, do I believe this? Lord, do we believe this? I, I want to say, I want everyone in this, in this room and beyond to say the same answer Martha gave. Yes, we believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, who is God with us, who has come into this world and solved the problems that we could never solve on our own. Would you help us to believe? We recognize that, that you give also belief. Help us, God. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with the state of our own hearts and the state of this world so that we can also also honestly seek after solutions that really work in you. Help us, God. Amen. Thanks again for listening to our podcast today. I pray again that it was a blessing and encouragement to your soul. And I hope to see you at one of our services at 10 a.m. Take care. God bless you. Uh